today's Rosillo Book Club episode is Bob Spitz, the author of the latest Led Zeppelin book. It just came out. Uh, fans of Led Zeppelin will love it. Fans of Led Zeppelin will also be super bummed out with the band. Um, so there's a lot to cover here. Spitz also did the Beatles book, a book on Ronald Reagan, Julia Child. So he's terrific. He also toured and managed uh, with Bruce Springsteen. So uh, this guy has been around music for decades, and we'll talk with him and then finish with Life Advice. It's the Ryan Rosillo podcast presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs and FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming, so please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 and older. 18 plus in DC and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler or visit rg help.com. This episode is brought to you by Hulu Plus Live TV. Looking for a better way to watch live TV? Stream your favorite sports and shows on over 95 live channels with Hulu Plus Live TV. Get access to Hulu's entire streaming library, Disney Plus and ESPN Plus, all in one plan. Start your free trial of Hulu Plus Live TV today. Live TV plan required. Restrictions apply. Access content from each service separately. Learn more at Hulu.com. Led Zeppelin is the book. Bob Spitz is the author and the legendary journalist joins us now. Uh, a lot of different ways we can go with this, but I, I really kind of want to start where the book starts and now have a further understanding of what Led Zeppelin was from its initial creation and that this really was Jimmy Page's thing. You know, this, this guitarist, this virtuoso, he had this vision, he had this thing in his head, these sounds, um, a studio musician, super accomplished at a very young age. But who was Jimmy Page kind of at this stage of trying to figure out who he wanted to be and what he wanted to create? Well, Jimmy had been in the studio for so long. I mean, he had... Uh hadn't really worked with a band for a couple years uh, and had been just a studio musician on hundreds of, I mean, seminal rock recordings. And not just seminal rock recordings, but, you know, Jimmy was the guitar player on all Tom Jones records on uh, Goldfinger by Shirley Bassey, of all things. He would walk into a studio not knowing who was going to be, uh, you know, on the other side of the door, and Jimmy would just play. Um, he loved working with bands, but he hadn't been on the road in a long time. And so he got hooked up with the Yardbirds as they were coming apart at the seams. Uh, his buddy, Jeff Beck, who he grew up with, by the way, Jeff Beck, Eric Clapton, and Jimmy Page all lived within a mile and a half of each other growing up. I mean, you know, imagine that something was in the water. Um so Jimmy got involved with the Yardbirds. It was coming apart at the seams, but he realized that he really liked working with a live rock and roll band. So he decided to put his own band together and it became Led Zeppelin. I mean, it was fantastic. And I known a little bit about, you know, the, the origin of it all, but it is kind of funny to think that one of the greatest and certainly at that time the arguably the the biggest rock band in the world was just gonna start as a reboot, like a like a TV show. <laughs> 20 years later that was like hey we're just going to name it the same thing and they were just going to be the new Yardbirds. like it's right. as original as as it became it's incredibly funny how unoriginal it was in the beginning yeah they couldn't get arrested as the new Yardbirds. i mean nobody was interested 
They had seen that band. Uh, they had seen it through various, you know, incarnations. First, Eric Clapton was their guitar player. Then uh, Jeff Beck was their guitar player. And now they have Jimmy Page. And it's like, who wants to hear from the Yardbirds again? They didn't want to hear over, under, sideways, down, over and again. So Jimmy decided to scrap it all. And uh, and also he, he he couldn't get control of the name either. So uh, he, he decided to go with uh, Led Zeppelin, which was just brilliant. And that was, was it, the name was, was it Keith Moon? It was, it, it was either Keith Moon or John Entwistle. They were in a session for Jeff Beck when he was making his first album. Uh, and who was there? Let's see. John Paul Jones was playing bass. Uh, Entwistle didn't show at the last minute. Moon was on, um, uh, Nicky Hopkins was playing piano. Uh, and Moon was on drums and Jimmy on guitar with uh, Jeff Beck. Oh, and Rod Stewart was singing, 15 years old. And at the end of it, they thought, you know, let's leave all our old bands behind. Let's form a new band. And Moon said, yeah, that'd go down like a Led Zeppelin. And Jimmy never forgot it. So Jimmy's got the idea. He's got the foundation. He meets Jones, bass player, through other session work. Uh, And then it's like, okay, well, how do we figure out, you know, they'd ask different drummers, and then they hear about Robert Plant and John Bonham, who I think the best way to explain this would be to think all these were English kids that were all of the same sensibilities. It'd be like saying some high school kid in Mississippi is the same as a high school kid going to a prep school in New York City. Like it, it couldn't be more different. Um, t- can you can you explain a little bit more on just how different the backgrounds and the personalities were of these two different pieces of the band? Well, it's so easy to explain because Jimmy and John Paul were London boys. And and Robert and John Paul and uh, Bonzo, they were from the Midlands, and that that's like you know saying uh, some guys are from New York and the other guys are from uh, Iowa. Yeah, uh, yeah. It, it was night and day, but it didn't start that way. It started with a young guy named Terry Reed, and if you haven't heard Terry Reed's albums, you should listen to them because they're fantastic. Terry had the voice that Jimmy was looking for, and it was the same kind of voice that Stevie Winwood had, I mean, who was regarded at that point as really the best rock and roll singer in, in the UK. And, and so Jimmy went after Terry Reed, but Terry had just signed a contract to do his own first album and wasn't interested. And he also, you know, he, he, he had been on the road with the Rolling Stones as an opening act. Uh, he was 16 years old. Uh, his career was just taking off and, and he didn't want to be involved with the new Yardbirds again. So he he recommended some kid he saw in the Midlands named uh, Robert Plant. And Terry said, you should look him up. And, and it was incredibly difficult for J- Jimmy to find him. Um, he was playing at a teacher's college and with a pickup band. And um, nobody was interested in Robert's voice. And Jimmy went to see him. And he thought, something's wrong with this guy. It's got to be because he's got the greatest voice I've ever heard. And he's not in a band. I mean, it's, you know, it was ridiculous. Um, and he thought, this kid must be a head case. Uh, but he tried him out. You know, we invited him down for a weekend. They, uh, they played each other their favorite records. They turned out to be the same things. Uh, and Jimmy fell in love. And that was it. And Robert fell in love, too. The blues influence 
you know, whether you, you knew the history previous to, or you listened to the songs like me as a kid, I remember the first time I ever heard Black Dog, you know, I remember, I remember where I was. I remember hearing that opening riff and I'm like, this feels different. Uh, I remember once I started to learn about them, I'd ask my father, you know, who'd been around, I go, what was your first, he goes, look, man. And my father, you know, seen everybody. And he goes, there was this moment where he was in New York city walking through, you know, maybe the village or something like that early, early on. Like, hey, this is Led Zeppelin, this, you know, this, this British invasion thing. But like, these guys are a little different. You should go check this out. And he goes, you know, you walk in and it was so powerful. It just absolutely blew you away. It just it was this experience, but it also had such a heavy, heavy blues influence, especially the first record, which, you know, influence might be being kind. Uh, what was it with this group of kids, these musicians that were just completely blown away by this, this older American music that was actually hard to even access for them. Yeah, it's a phenomenon that we missed completely in the States because none of the young kids when I was growing up, and I I grew up in the Elvis Presley era, uh, gravitating into the, you know, Bobby Rydell and Ricky Nelson and Fabian, and then gravitating even further into the Beatles. And But we missed that old blues era completely. And it exploded in the UK. I think one of the reasons is that the, um, the jazz bands uh, in the UK in the 1950s needed somebody to play in their intervals. In other words, there was 20 minutes when they could not, uh, when they needed to take a break. And so what they did was they imported these old blues guys from America to play those intervals because they worked so cheaply. Uh, but wow, the kids just were knocked out by the blues in the UK. And it, it exploded there. It's what the Yardbirds listen to, John Mayall and the Blues Breakers listen to. And right now I'm working with the Rolling Stones and it is surely what Keith and Mick listen to and Brian Jones listen to. Uh, and Jimmy was knocked out by it as well. So they, they, they really had a foundation and it wasn't R&B as we know it. It wasn't, you know, um, uh, the Temptations and the Supremes. It was people earlier than that. It was Big Bill Brunzi and Lightning Hopkins and Sonny Terry and all these great Mississippi and Chicago blues buddy guy. Um, and that was the foundation of everything that came out of the UK in the early 60s. And it's one of the reasons I started the book off that way, because before you understand Led Zeppelin, you have to understand what their influences were. No, it's a terrific way to set it all up because it, it it allows you to understand their own evolution. But as I said, like saying they were influenced is being nice because there's oh, yeah. another version of this really. Like, they, they, were were they were besotted. They they were ripping them off. I mean, they were taking lines straight out. So it'd be one thing to change a riff here or there. But even Plant admits, I think in the book, he was like, you know, there was a bit of a liberty there. And it's like, it's the same phrasing. I mean, Willie Dixon ends up what being credited on a song later on. So how do people, creative people kind of look back at that stage where it, it, I think at the time it's completely overlooked and looking back on it, like you kind of feel like what's what's the proper way to assess the influence versus ripping off other artists? Well, you know, listen, everybody, every art comes from something else, comes from an influence. Uh, and in the old days, you could write on an album uh, based on traditional, you know, on a traditional influence. Led Zeppelin just forgot about doing that. They just put their own names on these old great blues songs. Um, as you mentioned before, Willie Dixon is a prime example. Um, you know, you listen to a whole lot of love. That is Willie's song. I mean, it, it absolutely almost 
phrase by phrase, Robert changed it a little. And in the book, I think there's a, a great quote from Jimmy saying, yeah, Robert should have changed it a little more. Um, but eventually they, they acknowledged it. And, uh, you know, when Willie threatened to sue, they figured we better uh, come to terms with these old guys. Yeah, but then there's even like times, and I, you know, I'm not going to get bogged down in all this, but where you know, Jeff Beck listens to one of their songs and he thought it was an outtake as like a tribute to him. He's like, wait, that's that's on the album. And then, um, you know, one of the first songs that I always loved because I I love all the the John Fahey stuff. Like I started with Leo Kotke, then I worked myself backwards and ended up loving John Fahey even more just right. because of the emotion that he has in his music and his playing. Oh, yeah. And then you're reading that Paige was in love with Fahey. And then you're thinking, wait, so you're telling me White Summer, Black Mountainside was basically just a different song from another. And he just changed the title of it. So I went back and watched the, is it Bosch? I forget uh, the guitarist's name, who I started watching some of his videos. And I'm like, oh, they were kind of like, all he did was change the title of that one. So anyway. Yeah, it was Bert Bert Yanch. Yanch. Yanch, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Exactly right. Yeah. No, I mean, look, you know, these you have to understand another thing about Led Zeppelin. They were 20 years old when they got when they started. <laughs> you know, Jimmy was 23 and they didn't have, you know, the finesse and the, and the, the gravitas uh, of, of an older rock band. They, these were kids and they just put their band together. They stole things. They put it, you know, they, they were having a good time. It caught up with them later, but I, I think they handled themselves pretty well through it all. Let's talk about Peter Grant, their manager, uh, infamous. Can you share with us, and I've read the book, but can you please share with us more detail on how he actually figured out a way to get Led Zeppelin exclusively from from his partner at the time? Because it it sounds like maybe one of the worst business decisions with one of the most evil seeds planted in pulling this off. Well, well, Peter was in business with a guy named Mickey Most. Mickey Most is one of the absolute most successful rock and roll producers in the UK. And in the early days, you know, Mickey did uh, the animals and uh, I mean, just everybody. Uh, And Peter was his partner. Peter handled the groups that went on the road. Mickey handled them in the studio. But when Peter came across Jimmy Page, he realized, I'm not sharing this with Mickey for a couple of reasons. Mickey produced pop music. And if he got his hands and insisted on producing Led Zeppelin, it would have just fallen apart. The other thing was he realized that he had a bonanza on his hands and he didn't want to share it financially. So he told Mickey that he was dying <laughs> and he only had a few a few months to live. And these guys were such good friends that Mickey bought it lock, stock and barrel and gave Peter the entire rights to Led Zeppelin and he walked away with it. Uh, Mickey's wife told me this story because she was she was there when Mickey came home and said, listen, I, I just gave Peter the rights to let Jimmy Page's new band. You know, he's this poor guy's done. He wants to leave it as a legacy to his kids. And she said, are you out of your mind? You've just been scammed. And of course he was. But they remained friends somehow. I, I Believe me, I would have shot the guy probably. But, <laughs> but Peter, uh, Peter and Mickey stayed friends throughout the whole thing. Everybody that's creative, you know, you can feel like nothing's happening fast enough. But for this group, it it feels like in a very, very short amount of time, they were like the undisputed biggest rock band in the world. 
how did they did, were they aware? I mean, I don't know if you can be aware at the time. And in, in looking back, they can say that they were. But I mean, how did you feel like they were processing this phenomenon that became? I mean, you know, critics, oh, they're just loud and they're singing about sex. It's like, yeah, but yeah. It, it was clear the audience was getting something from them that they weren't getting from anyone else at that time. Ryan, here's why they weren't aware. They weren't aware because they were doing great mistakes, but they couldn't get arrested in London. In London, nobody was interested in them. So every time they go back from doing an American tour and try to set something up back in the UK, uh, their balloon burst. Um, it, it took a much longer time to get them off the ground there. So that's why they didn't think that they were doing something new. But I'll, I'll tell you, one of the things that I think, going to answer your question head on, is why they took off so fast and why it burst wide open in the States was because they decided to play to a new generation. The 60s was over. Led Zeppelin came up with the sound for the 70s. And so while the Beatles had played to 15-year-old girls and 15-year-old boys who were now grown up and in their 20s, Led Zeppelin found the new generation. They were playing to 15-year-old boys and 15-year-old girls in the, in the 70s. And it, it was a new sound. It was the sound of the 70s. Uh, Jimmy created it. And uh, and it burst wide open, and there was no stopping it. I think that's more uh, that answer. I think should answer your question a little better than yeah. Than I asked it, perhaps. No, uh, no, <laughs> than saying that they were aware of what was going on. I, I you know, that they weren't aware of what was going. On. It just grew up around them, and it took off. And once it took off, they had no control over it anymore. I love the Rolling Stones part of the story in how you know the stones worked at being famous uh led zeppelin did not maybe they were too young to understand it they hated the press the press loved the stones the stones i think you even mentioned one of the first recordings that they had heard of what zeppelin did they hated it didn't even want to listen to it yeah. uh, how did that continue throughout you know these two english bands that are so popular but it felt like from Led Zeppelin's side, I don't know if jealousy is the right word, but just frustration with the way they felt like they were treated completely differently than the Stones were. Yeah, I have a, bit, a little better grip on this right now because for the last two years, I've been the Rolling Stones biographer. Well, I can't wait, by the way. Yeah, so. well, I've been working on that left and right. But uh, basically, what it, it irked Jimmy and Robert. I mean, just it, it irked them terribly that the Stones got all this publicity. And that Led Zeppelin was just dismissed. Um, and that's because I think um, the old generation of rock critics, and these are the guys who grew up with the Stones and the Beatles and then Crosby, Stills and Nash and Joni Mitchell and James Taylor. These, they were all in their late 20s, these critics. They didn't want to have anything to do with this new music. So they panned Led Zeppelin. They really did. I mean, they beginning with Rolling Stone, Crawdaddy, all the major magazines dismissed Led Zeppelin. And it, it drove Jimmy and Robert nuts. Then the Stones began to appear everywhere. They were the press darlings. Uh, and Led Zeppelin couldn't figure it out because they sold eight times as many records as the Rolling Stones. But it was their own doing. I mean, Jimmy and Robert were terrible to the press from the very beginning. They mocked them from the stage often. They they brought up 
critics by name from the stage and tore them apart. And when they had, even when they had press parties for their new albums, Led Zeppelin sat together at a table, wrote themselves off, wouldn't let the press near them. So, you know, I mean, it was a monster of their own making and it really bugged them. But the Stones were press darlings. They knew how to handle it. They were older. They had been around it more. They weren't with a guy like Peter Grant. You know, if, if Led Zeppelin had been with anybody but Peter Grant, uh, it might have been different. But Grant, you know, Grant was a thug and Grant gave them the thug's kind of aura uh, and, and told them not to deal with the press. And, that, and I think that hurt them in the long run. As the story continues, I think there's maybe 20, that might be a low number, of 20 different people being quoted as, well, at that stage, Peter Grant had kind of gone off the deep end. And then right. like five pages later, it's somebody, right. and then we're years later, it's like at that point, Grant was getting really bad. You mentioned his background. He was muscle. Um, he liked this role. He started bringing other people around him that were tough guys um, that, that I would say even band members at times were afraid of. Uh, we, I want to talk about the partying and the notorious part of this, but Grant, between his own drug use, which I think the simple answer to a lot of this is how did it turn into this? Drugs. But yeah. it seemed like in the beginning when it wasn't so much about drugs, they relished the idea of being the absolute bad boys of rock and roll. It was kind of like reading about Motley Crue again, where the other rock bands would be like, those guys are at an entirely different level that I don't even want to approach. And that felt like what Zeppelin was to their contemporaries. Yeah, you know, Zeppelin, look, Again, I think it was just the difference between the 60s and the 70s. In the 60s, the drug of choice was marijuana. You kind of mellowed out. In the 70s, Led Zeppelin's music, uh, the drug of choice was cocaine. Uh, and it, it did something completely different to them, to their audiences, uh, to their behavior. Uh, and they felt they could get away with anything when they were coked up. Grant was. You know, Grant fueled it. A lot of the money that they made went to tons of cocaine. I mean, I, I don't use that word lightly. Grant traveled with a holdall that he always had next to him. And there was usually about a, a bag with two pounds of coke in it all the time. And he dispensed it just like the Pied Piper. Um, so the behavior, you know, was kind of off the wall. Uh, it was unchecked. And as you mentioned, as the story rolls on, person after person says it was coming apart because Peter Grant had gone off the rails. Big news. FanDuel has an all new mobile gaming app, FanDuel Faceoff. FanDuel Faceoff is where you compete in quick, fun games against other real people for real cash. It has all sorts of games that you're familiar with, like a home run derby. Wheel of Fortune, puzzle and strategy games with more on the way. Contests are action-packed in at least two to five minutes so you can play on your couch, waiting in line, during a commercial break, wherever and on your schedule. Plus, you can practice for free anytime. Whether it be head-to-head, -head, multiplayer, or larger tournaments, FanDuel Faceoff has something for you. Plus, in most contests, you'll be matched against players of similar skill levels, so you're never totally overmatched, even as a beginner. Faceoff is also tied to your FanDuel account and wallet so you can easily use your daily fantasy funds or sportsbook winnings in the app. Look, you can play for cash. You can play for free. The games are simple and engaging, and the best part is it's connected to existing FanDuel Fantasy Sportsbook accounts. Visit FanDuel.com forward slash Ryan Faceoff. That's R-Y-E-N Faceoff to download the FanDuel Faceoff app and get in the game. Age and location restrictions apply. Void where prohibited. See FanDuel.com forward slash Faceoff dash terms for terms and conditions. This episode is supported by State Farm. So look. 
a little rock, hit your dude's windshield on the highway. And at first you're like, what is that? I'm like, oh, it's just a little mark. Nope. Now by the end of the ride, it's a big crack. And it had been a while. So I check out the State Farm app. I go, hey, this is what happened. And the funny thing is, is I was like, do I want to go app first or do I call old school guy? Probably should call. I was like, let's check out the app. Not only did it take a minute to get done, they set up the glass replacement. They told me the estimate ahead of time, said, do you want to go ahead with it? And I was like, now I understand it's all in front of me, all done. I don't even have to talk to anybody. That's how efficient the insurance game has become. But really, the only words you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options, protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, just like I did, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to somebody. The app was so good, I didn't even need to do that. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. La Quinta by Wyndham has everything you need for your next business trip. From free high-speed Wi-Fi to fitness centers to free bright side breakfast with fresh waffles, eggs, and more, book direct at LQ.com. Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. The other part of the story that's, that's you know, it sucks reading about it, um, the groupie part of it, but how, how young the girls were at that time. And then sometimes even the parents being involved and very proactive with, with dropping their daughters under 16 off at the hotels. Um, when you're going back and researching that and talking to some of the, you know, who are women now or kids at the time and, and thinking back to those times, like what was that part like reporting on it? Yeah, it was really tough. Um, and I have a wife who's a real feminist and, you know, she read me the riot act. She said, don't you dare call them young women. They were girls. Um, they weren't 16, they were 14. And I will tell you in some cases, 12. And, uh, I met with a lot of them. There are now women in their late fifties and early sixties, um, who, who told me explicitly and, you know, Jimmy and Robert owned up to it. I mean, you know, they, they didn't try to dispute it. It's it, what, what was happening. Um, yeah, it was really hard. It, I'm the father of a daughter. Uh, it was hard to read some of this stuff. Um, it was mostly focused in Los Angeles, but not all that, you know, it happened across the country and Texas and Alabama. Um, and and it, it kind of set off a chain reaction among those kinds of bands that played that kind of music uh, for that kind of behavior. Yeah, it's tough to read. Uh, it, was. And, it was hard to write. Yeah. And when you keep getting back, like later in the story, like Jimmy, Jimmy's off the rails, you know, the Coke has now evolved into heroin use. And, you know, anyone that's ever read about any of this stuff knows that the drummer Bonzo was, was out of control from the jump, but he hated being in the States. It seemed like plant hated being away from his family. Jones seemed to be more of the straight guy throughout all of it. But when they're complaining about how brutal the American crowds are, and then they talk about the South and you're like afraid if somebody's going to shoot you, you're like, well, you know, how much of that is the crowd and, and gun laws and how much is it in your own behavior? And yeah. I didn't think there was, you know, it, it's lacking accountability on that part of it. But I, I didn't I wasn't searching for accountability probably in a rock story either. So, you know, right. you didn't get it in my story. Yeah. But nevertheless, you know, I, I really wanted to make sure in the book that this was not a book about bad behavior. I mean, you know, I, I yes, there was bad behavior and I hit it on the head, 
but I really wanted readers to know that this is also a book about a band that made that transformed the music scene, made great rock and roll, and really, you know, changed what we listened to. So it, it was really hard striking that balance. Uh, I wanted to make sure that I kept it, you know, balanced well. I want to get back to the music because sure. whenever I think about, you know, the bands that end up going down historically, uh, they always evolve before we're ready. You know, they, they really do. And, yeah. you know, Zeppelin, as you mentioned, the influences early on. But like once you get to physical graffiti and you think about these first five albums, you're going, look what these what, look at what they've tried. And, and you're very fair in that not every attempt is is nailed but that they're even trying. Like I remember when you two decided to just completely revamp who they were, I had a hard time with it. And honestly, I never liked them as much again as I did in those first 10 years. The yeah. police I thought were terrific with it. Uh, reading Miles Davis's biography, he, he was incredible. And like how mad the jazz world got at him from getting away from the standards and him going, no, I want this player. I want to do this. Like we need to start doing more. And then you go back and don't listen to all the, Don't forget about the Beatles too, because the, the Beatles evolved through every album that they ever made. Beatles may be the best example of not giving the audience what they wanted every time and then right. proving that they were right about it. And Zeppelin did it from a genre that can't quite be defined in the same way. But what did you learn from, from talking with whether it was the, the members that you interviewed here or just the people that were around it as you know, they remained this popular despite it almost felt like initial doubts of, of whatever creative changes that they were making? Well, they did something very smart when they did Led Zeppelin three, which was basically an acoustic album, and then decided to go out and you know play, you know really focus on the album in their in their shows. They also made sure that they were going to play you know the, the headbangers as well. So they they you know they struck a, a, a good balance, and I think they let their audience say, okay, listen, we'll let you guys. You know, it's like listening to the Beatles do, you know, something slow and and roomy and dreamy, and and, and yet they were going to, you know, play the hits. And and Led Zeppelin did that; they played the hits as well. But it allowed them to really change and and inject new kinds of sounds. I mean, you know, when we get later on, when Jimmy and Robert go to Morocco and come back, and you know, there's Cashmere sitting right there. On, I mean. This was something completely new. Kids had never heard before. Um, you know, it, you could look at each one of the albums that they introduced. The sound always changed. They always threw in a few rock and roll songs. Um, but they they really allowed themselves to experiment. And that's what any good rock and roll band does. Yeah, and what's so frustrating about the story is it actually just continues to get like sadder in a way because <laughs> then you're realizing they're just on fumes. It felt like they were on fumes the last few years. Uh, what's, what's the best way to kind of discuss that part of it? Oh, one word, drugs. You know, yeah. the, drugs, the drugs took over. Uh, and it got to a point, and, and so many people have told me this, people who work closely with them, that there were times when Jimmy was playing the double neck guitar, and he was so out of it that he was cording on one neck and strumming on the other neck. I mean, when things get out of control like that, there's a, there are a couple... There, there are a couple of videos I've seen where Jimmy's playing, and and I know as the biographer that he's sloppy and out of control. And you see Robert on the side of the stage while Jimmy's doing a lead, and Robert's just looking at him and shaking his head because he knows too. 
uh, and that's what happened toward the end. You know, people say that the band fell apart because of Bonzo's death, but um, it was coming apart at the seams. It really was. And it, it, I don't think it was fun for them anymore. I, I, Robert lost his desire to sing, uh, especially after his son died and what happened in, in Oakland. And, um, you know, and, and they, Bonzo was out of it. Jimmy was out of it. Peter Grant was out of it. Um, yeah, it, it, it was the heart. The heart was out of the band at the end. What was the best Bonzo story that also might be the worst? Yikes. Actually, the best Bonzo story that I had was was listening to how he really got off the ground in the Midlands. Uh, in the Midlands, they played in the pubs. That's where rock and roll bands, it wasn't like coffee houses. They played in the pubs, and that's where they cut their teeth. But the pubs in, in the Midlands had, <laughs> they had a, a like a stoplight that you would see with a red light, a yellow light, and a green light. And if you were playing and it wasn't too loud, then the, the green light was on. If it got close to the edge, the yellow light went on. And if the red light went on, they pulled the plug on you. That, that's the way the pubs did it. Well, the problem was that every band Bonzo played with, while they were setting up, Bonzo would rehearse. It would go straight to the red light. And they would kick the band out of the pub before they even started. Uh, you know, that's uh, Bonzo was a, had a heavy foot, and and he had that signature sound, and and he could never play with a band in the Midlands. Growing up, it got really it got really tough. That's the best Bonzo story I know. You did a really great job, though, of emphasizing the technical part of it. In that, from the very beginning, once they heard him play the drums, then it was like, wait this is different. It sounds different. It's like, it can be heavy. It can be loud, but there's stuff that he's doing that just most people can't do. And that can kind of get lost in it. Look, I'm a musician. Uh, you know, I, I played with Bruce Springsteen and I, I was, uh, I was just with Elton John for years and I know music, but I could not figure out what Bonza was doing. And so I, I found Carmine Apice, who was the drummer for, uh, you know, one of the great rock and roll drummers. And uh, he sat and explained what Bonzo was doing with his feet. I said, can you do that? And he said, no. He was playing triplets with his feet on the bass drums. I mean, this it was remarkable. His, his power was great, but his coordination was exceptional. And it's, it's really funny. I'm a guitar guy. But as I listened to Led Zeppelin on, the, on earphones, I realized that the best musician in the band was the drummer. Yeah. No, I mean, I think you grow up, you just think of Paige and then, you know, you're never quite sure because you go, well, wait a minute, where does he rank Hendrix and, and Clapton? And, you know, I've, I've gone back and read all the books and it's just a lot of fun at the time. Like, I, I'll never forget how laugh, I'm laughing, I was on vacation just laughing out loud at Jimi Hendrix shy as hell walking up to Robert Clapton, or excuse me, Eric Clapton. And it might have been when he was with Cream and he was like, do you mind if I like sit in? <laughs> Who is this guy? And then apparently he did. And then Clapton was like, oh my God, like, you know, everybody's talking about me. And then I don't. And so then it always kind of felt like Paige was in that conversation. But then, you know, I think Beck is always a great reminder too, but because of his band and what they did, it just was never going to resonate the same way with everybody else. Um, But 
yeah, the, the Bonzo part of it is great. And as you mentioned, like once he was done, that was it. There was just, there was never, it seemed like maybe there was a hint at it, but it feels pretty definitive that looking back at that time when he was gone, they kind of knew the band was dead. Yeah. Ro- Robert, you know, the, Robert it, it had, had had his heart broken. First, his son dies. Um, then he's in an, well, he's in an accident with his wife, which she almost dies in a car accident. And then, you know, Jimmy, he's seen Jimmy pass out backstage on drugs. Robert decides never to go near drugs again. And he also realizes that uh, Jimmy is a bad influence on him. And in fact, I I will tell you this. I know from people talking to Robert now, he can't get the name Jimmy Page out of his mouth. It's like Joe Biden saying, my former colleague, you know, Robert can't say Jimmy Page. He always says the guitar player that I worked with. Um, that's one thing. The other thing is that Robert just, he couldn't sing Stairway to Heaven again. He just, he didn't want to do it, you know. And so if you saw the um, the Kennedy Center honors, when Obama gives them the honors, John Paul is there and Jimmy's there and Robert's there. And John Paul and Jimmy are just smiling through the whole thing. But when the camera's on Robert, Robert's just staring into the void. No smile, no no togetherness with the guys. He's out of the band. And when his when his mate died, and you know, he had known Bonzo since they were 14 years old. Uh, that was it for Robert. It cut his heart. It was really interesting reading along, and I would go back to listen to the albums, you know, it as you would. I, I like to kind of go back and I'll read the chapter and I'll go back and listen because, you know, maybe yeah. I'm hear something different, but it was, I don't know that I ever really picked up on it before until I'd read the book. But when you listen to presence, you're like, Oh, Robert does actually sound shot. It yeah. does. And, and you're, you're building to this. It was just inconsistent. These guys are running themselves ragged, uh, which, you know, we've explained here, but I noticed like, Oh wait, that power, the range and some of the stuff. And that's on a studio album. Right. And you're thinking, wow. Cause it was, it didn't really dawn on me. Maybe I was looking for that, but it felt that way. It felt, it felt different listening to it after reading that chapter. Yeah, and they weren't really working together anymore. You know, yeah. uh, Robert and, and John Paul had sat around in a hotel for weeks waiting for Jimmy and Bonzo to show up. And then Jimmy shows up in one day and puts the whole album on, on the record, you know, on, on tape. And, and so, you know, where are guys like Robert and John Paul going to get energized playing i mean they can't it's impossible and so um yeah you can hear it you can hear it in the albums by the time you get to coda you know for me it was a real treat and i'll tell you ryan when i started this book when my editor came to me and said would you write this book i had twenty thousand vinyl albums in my collection and not a single led zeppelin album i did not know this band I didn't know their music. I knew Whole Lot of Love and I knew Stairway to Heaven. And that was it because I was on the road with Bruce Springsteen during those days. And, you know, Led Zeppelin just wasn't, it didn't cross paths with us at all. So I really was in a wonderful place to be their biographer. I went in with a complete empty head and let the music fill me up. And it did. I, I was an empty vessel and they, they uh, it, it just poured into me and I could hear everything fresh and really understand where they were coming from. It was a real treat. I was going to let you go, but I, I have to ask 
just a one Springsteen question in here. Um, sure. Cause I remember being a kid and, and carrying bricks uh, to my dad while we lay brick on hot summer afternoons. And, you know, when, uh, when his, when a new tape was out, the boss would, would get heavy rotation on those, those hot summer days. And I would look around and I would see the guys working and I would think, man, these guys fucking love this dude. You know, and I'm, and I'm a kid. I still like loved you two. Police were, were always kind of my number one and two, probably a little minute work sprinkled in there at that age. But there was this, just the Bruce Springsteen fan is like different. And then I had never, I I'd admit for me, it wasn't ever like one of my number one go-tos. And then I saw him at an event and I knew the energy. I knew the energy. What is it about him? And I can understand, hey, he's a performer. He's a professional. This is what he has to do. He, but what is it about him to stay at this peak level of intensity and passion and caring for the audience that yeah. we just don't see for this long? I'll, I'll tell you, it, it's really easy to figure out. There are so few guys who can do this because it's all about rock and roll. And so it happens with Bruce. It happens with a guy like Keith Richards. Uh, this is, they only care about the music. That's it. It is in their bloodstream and they love it. And what you see on stage is that pure love. Keith loves playing rock and roll. The guy's going to be 80 years old. Bruce and I are the exact same age. Uh, we're both 72. He loves playing rock and roll, and that's what does it. It, com it connects with the audience. It is something that is so definable, and, and you can't turn away from it. Uh, and it's true. It's something that's real, and it's not staged. You know, Bruce is a great performer, but the music is what's in his blood, in his blood and in his heart, and that's what comes across. What's a Keith Richards interview like at 78 years old? They're great. The guy is terrific. He's smart, uh, really articulate. Compared to Mick, Mick won't answer anything. Mick elbows every every question away. Keith hits it right on, won't turn away from it, really knows how to talk about music. It's, it's a pleasure. I can't wait for the Rolling Stones book, Bob. This was a lot of fun. And for people that want to check out the Beatles, incredible, the Reagan book and everything. So thanks for all the work on this and thanks for the time today. Yeah, my, my pleasure. I enjoyed being here with you, Brian. This episode is brought to you by Hulu Plus Live TV. Looking for a better way to watch live TV? Stream your favorite sports and shows on over 95 live channels with Hulu Plus Live TV. Get access to Hulu's entire streaming library, Disney Plus and ESPN Plus, all in one plan. Start your free trial of Hulu Plus Live TV today. Live TV plan required. Restrictions apply. Access content from each service separately. Learn more at Hulu.com. This episode is brought to you by Arby's. You know what I hate? Hate. Is after lunch, there's all this time before dinner. I hate it. So I'm always like, do I do this? It's like, you should. Gain season. Throw in a little something extra. An appetizer that just starts hours before dinner. It just gets so frustrating when there aren't great options. That's where Arby's new two for $5 chicken wraps come in. Available in your choice of ranch, barbecue, and honey mustard. They're perfect for that afternoon snack attack or as an add-on to your meal. Food buddies. Arby's two for $5 chicken wraps are here for a limited time at participating locations. Visit an Arby's near you or order ahead on the Arby's app. 
You want details? Bye. I drive a Ferrari, 355 Cabriolet. What's up? I have a ridiculous house in the South Fork. I have every toy you can possibly imagine. And best of all, kids, I am liquid. So, now you know what's possible. Let me tell you what's required. Life advice. Life advice, rr at gmail.com. Okay, this is a good one. I don't know if I want to tell my story. Suri's already looking at me. Like, the worst times to ask for raises or contracts. Because <laughs> I don't know if anybody did it at a worse time than I did. But I did it. So... <laughs> We'll see. We'll see how it goes. Maybe, okay, maybe I'll right. do it. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I want to share it because if I share the number with everybody, but I just want to be totally honest. And the thing is, if I share the number uh, at the time of what I turned out at ESPN, like people are going to be like, are you fucking serious? You're such an idiot. And then I would just go, yeah, but you don't know what everybody else makes. So if you were in my position, you would have been like, but again, I'm not saying I'm going to come out great in that story. So I'm not sure if I want to do it, but I kind of like, I like attacking myself at times. Just iron sharpens iron. Especially when you're the piece of iron walking around. What the fuck am I even talking about? All right, so let's get to the email. Uh, our guy checking in, 510-140. Live. Stealth. Yeah. Crazy foot speed. I work for a company that employs over 1,000 people. Uh, with the recent economic downturn and rising interest rates, our management felt it necessary to downsize to weather the coming storm. That's their quote, as they put it. I was lucky enough to keep my job, but we did lose somebody in our department team as the company let go uh, of about 50 people. And this had nothing to do with the financial health of the company, but rather the volume of work trending down or so they told us. I will tell you, it is not um, uncommon for corporate America to use economic downturns when the company is totally healthy and may not be affected by anything, which, you know, it's a bit naive to say nothing would affect all these different companies. But there are a lot of companies who are like, let's get rid of the dead weight here. And then we have an excuse to also go ahead and do this. So uh, as somebody that has been through multiple layoffs with a major company like Disney, um, you know, it was always a little different. It was always kind of this, like, I think a lot of times too, they were just like, they, I think Disney at some point got to the point where they were just like, we need extra money for all the live rights that we're going to go after with the live rights prices going up and up and up. So it sucks because I lost a lot of friends in a lot of those layoffs. Uh, but um corporate america doesn't have to tell you the truth <laughs> they don't they don't have to say oh this is why we're doing it like if they're getting ahead of it it means they're probably getting rid of if it's a thousand people working there they feel like this is 50 they could have kept everybody else can do the job i mean it's pretty crazy when you think about like somehow some shows would be staffed even at espn because the only thing i can really compare it to where you would have a certain number of people on a show and then it would just be like you know what we're going to trim this a little bit and next thing you know you're still getting the show out every single day and then management feels better because they're like look instead of eight people on the show they got six and the thing the lights go on every day and they're they're getting it done so there you go all right so for the past uh, past two months i've been uh, in conversations about getting a raise that i felt i'd earned you don't get a lot of emails that say i asked for a raise don't think i deserve it though my <laughs> manager's my nature yeah right took my <laughs> shot pretty <laughs> Kind of surprised I didn't get let go. <laughs> yeah. My managers in HR discussed me. Uh, they would like my career path uh, for what they would like, what they would like my career path to be. Uh, these are, these conversations have resulted in a plan where I would get a small title change and bump in pay in about one month and then continue training towards the next role that I would transition to go over the next year. The one month has come and gone without the change being processed, and then 50 people just got let go. So my question is, at what point do I inquire about my situation or I just say nothing and not put a target on my back when it comes to potential future downsizing? It's been very frustrating trying to fight for what I'm worth uh, and that I don't give up, but also I'm afraid of ramifications since the coming recession will be the first of my adult life. Okay. 
Complicated. Not an easy answer. Uh, it, a lot of this d- comes down to how important are you to the future of this company, all right? And I don't, I'm not going to know that in this email. And you have to be honest with yourself. And at times, it, it's not even, you know, sometimes you can blame younger people for being like not super clear about how valuable they really are, especially, you know, again, my industry isn't always the best because my industry is fucking weird this way. But in the corporate side of things, you know, you'll hear old, you'll hear, uh, older people be like, oh, this, you know, this group coming in, they don't get it. That's been going on for decades, right? So I don't know that that's totally specific to younger people coming to the workforce now. So I don't want to be unfair about it. But I mean, how important are you? Do you think you're important? Do you get really good feedback? Do you get better assignments? If they were talking to you about potentially getting a raise and a bump and a title here, then, you know, based on the only evidence that we have in the email, it sounds like, you know, you're doing a good job. They're going to want to keep you around. So by asking right when it's happening, probably hold off on that. All right. You don't want to be the worst timing. You don't want to be the worst timing ever. Like I remember when Canel got let go that day, somebody sent me a text asking to be my co-host. I was like, you know, can we let the body get fucking cold first? <laughs> you know? And I remember being pissed about it. Like, and I like the guy that sent the text, but I was just like, dude, the day I lose my co-host, you're asking to get his gig. So you don't want to do that. You don't want to be that guy, but you also don't want to just give up on this either. Like this is your career and you just got to kind of know the timing of it all. So it's unfortunate you're losing some of the workforce. I would give it some time maybe a month, you'll know better than I would. If you're valuable, which it sounds like you must be if they were willing to change your title and give you a pay bump, then because you're asking about where you're at, it doesn't mean that you're going to be in the crosshairs next time to live. The only time you're going to be in the crosshairs is either if you're so expensive, which is unfortunately what happened with a lot of people at ESPN at the top level, some of the top level talented to let go during the, the talent layoffs. Like Those people, some of them were just expensive. And the way the math worked on all the accounting was it was like, okay, if we have to clear this much salary, this is how we're going to do it. So you actually, it wasn't so much if you were good or bad at your job. A lot of times it was like, who's really expensive so we can save more jobs. So I doubt you're making a ton of money at this point. That could also be a way you survive. So for asking for a raise, does it mean like the next raise here is going to make you more susceptible to let go? I doubt the raise is going to go up that much, but you should really understand it. And is there anyone there that you trust on the management side that's not going to fucking snitch on you, right? That you can say in a month, hey, do you remember when we were talking about pay bump and a title change for me? I want to know when the right time is to ask somebody else about that. Can you help me? You know, that's some of the office politics thing there. So you're not asking, but you kind of are asking. You're trying to get a little bit more information here. Uh, as someone that asked for a raise right after he'd been arrested, not the greatest time. Wow. I did not think you were going to say that. I thought you were going to say like a different bad time to ask for a raise. Did not think you were no. going to say that. No, like here's the deal. Like when I got arrested in August and then I knew, um, you know, some people like to really screw up the timeline with me because if you don't like me, it's a super easy thing to do. Be like, oh, you know, career went in the shitter after that, which is that show was didn't have a long future for like two years. All right. For two years, I knew I was fucked. And I kept asking, I would be like, Hey, are you guys seriously going to give my show to Stephen A? No, we never do that to you. You know, it went on and on and on, on and on and on. And then finally I was like, Hey, I've had a, you know, and then once everybody knew what actually happened in Wyoming, people at work to their credit were like, Hey, we get it. But you know, we still got to slap you around a little bit. And I was like, I deserve that. And that's fine. And then a couple months later, 
they were like, yeah, we're giving your show to Stephen A, which was always going to happen before. It was it was always going to happen before, but people tried to play it out to like that was the reason. And it wasn't. Saruti is my guy, so no one's going to care if he backs me up here or not. But he would because he knows we, we, he was working on the show like this was so obvious it was going to happen. And at the time, I was just like, OK, so fine. Like my contract is coming up in eight or nine months. You're giving me a demotion, which I can't really take in my contract. I was like, can we redo my deal? And the guy's like, well, we can, but like, do you think now's the right time? <laughs> You're not going <laughs> to like it. <laughs> right. Cause it was four months after, you know, everything had happened. And, uh, I was like, yeah, cause I kind of knew deep down, I was like, I'm probably leaving. And so then they made an offer. It was the same salary. And they were like, we can tack on another three years. Uh, and I was like, no, I still think I'm making way less than other people. That I do better than, and he was like, "Yeah, you are, but this is what we're gonna offer you." And so, shout out to I was like, threat, baby, yeah. So I was yeah. like, "Yeah," I was like, "No, I'm good." And that was it. He was like, "Are you serious? You're gonna turn down this much money? Like, just take it. It's guaranteed money. It's a lot of money. Like, I don't know if I want to share it because I think people are gonna get pissed at me, but I think I would share it because I knew how much other people were making, so I never felt like I'm crushing it. I would say for people that were on the air. As much as I was, I was probably paid the least. So even an extension of what I was going to make, and the guy's like, this is guaranteed money. Like, just fucking take it and then figure out the rest of it later. And I was like, I don't know, four to seven. I'm like, I'm out of here. He's like, you want to sleep on it? I was like, now we're good. And that was it. <laughs> and that was it. So, you know, what? I'm not going to share the number. I'll, it'll be in the book one day. <laughs> I just, um, I think you're right about that one thing where, uh, I think people do like being asked questions when you're like, hey, I like I trust what you think of this situation. I don't know exactly how I'm going to do it. Do you have any advice? And then maybe something will get floated, but maybe it won't. But I just like I think you could tell who's like a person around that's higher up that you're like, I'm just wondering what you think I should do about this and and just letting that go. I think that would be good. That being said, I just finished The Wire again and season five newspaper layoffs. Brutal. So I can imagine you're feeling I felt nervous for those guys and I was just sitting on my couch. So. I could see, I guess, yeah, Gus, I mean, he really just tried his best, but I think, I he think he's trying that, to do the job. Gus was, you know, he's a, he's a newspaper man. That's what he was. That's what he was ever yeah. since that day where he had that guy on the bus folding it perfectly, uh, whatever he was saying. But I, th I could see like, even just as a watcher, I was like, this is, this is really we'll weird. I can't imagine anybody wanting to even poke their head up to say anything to anyone at that point. So, um, I don't know. I think I think the best thing you said would be to I mean, if you feel like you could talk to the HR person, great. But if not, yeah, go to somebody that you trust higher up and see what you think they would do if they were you. Those questions are easy to answer if it's not about you. Yeah, I don't really have much to add. I would just a couple months, give it a couple months, I would say to just to be safe. I don't know. I don't think there's any reason to like do it the week or two even a month afterwards. But that's it's also some, like a conversation, even if you don't have that person that you can go to who's like, you know, you're off the record guy or girl who's a who's a higher up. It's still probably worth whoever your manager is just like always having that conversation of like, hey, what's the next level? Like, I'm just interested. Like, what's the next level I can get to? Like, what do I have to do to be there? So you always kind of know where you're at. I was really bad at that when I was younger. I was just like, hey, I'm going to just do my job. And like, whenever I get paid, I get paid. Like, I just, you know, and I just didn't think about that until probably even in my 30s after probably my end of, you know, end of my time at ESPN. But it's it's something you should talk about. Like, always just be like, what's my next step? You know, Ryan, I think you kind of taught this to me, like, you're 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 sort of like never satisfied in whatever role you're at and it's it's something that you know i think other people should try to emulate and be like okay 
this is this is cool. I like where I'm at now. But like, what's the next thing? What's the next thing I could do? So if you're always thinking in that mode and talking about that with whoever your manager is, even if you're not that close with them, it's still a really good conversation to have. And it kind of like gives the impression that you are ambitious, even if you're not even the most ambitious person there is. <laughs> so I would uh, that's that's how I would handle it. If you don't have somebody you can go to that's safe, at least try to start regularly having those conversations. Yeah, but don't have them too often. Because that's that's another no. Thing. I'm not talking yeah, like every right. month, but like no, a couple no. couple times a year. Just hey, just to check in. Where am I at? You know, I think yes, that's fair. yes, yes. Check in with the people that matter. You know, make the people that matter whenever they have to make a decision. It's a more human decision. So if you're just somebody who's really good at your job and you stick your head in the corner, I mean, that's kind of what I did as an on air guy. I just stuck my head in the corner and then did the show and was like, well, I'm good. So why doesn't everybody like me? And it was like, no, because I never, I didn't. I mean, there's a much longer story. We touched on some of these things with ESPN in the past, but. Yeah, uh, I always think it's kind of funny, though, when when people would be like, you asked for a raise after everything that happened. And I was like, look, it didn't really matter. It didn't matter because if nothing had happened, all of the things were still going to happen. And I wasn't going to get a raise because the guy that was offering me the new deal was like, wait, you thought you were going to get a raise? And I was like, yeah, but you're telling me you're not demoting me, but you're demoting me. He's like, it's not really a demotion. I'm like, well, then, you know, I'll take a raise. And he was like, nah. And then we started going over other salaries and he's like, yeah, no, I get it. I get it, but you know, whatever, like it was kind of like, go fuck yourself. And so I was like, yeah, okay, cool. I will go fuck myself. But I also had to be okay with everything else. You're not in the, you're just getting started, man. So you're going to be a little bit more delicate. Do not follow any of my advice on anything that I'm just talking <laughs> yeah, about. Yeah, I mean, Ryan, okay, that's right. the thing. Again, Ryan was like, is you know, if you're going to walk away from the table, you have to, <laughs> you know, you, you, you have to be very sure that like you're okay doing that. Oh my you God. were very sure of like where you're at, Ryan. Not everybody is that way. Like if you're not sure to walk away from the table, don't do that. But also to, to an earlier point. If I had a I mean, wife, look, if I had a wife and kids at home, I'd, I'd still be in Connecticut right now. Yeah. Yeah. But to, to an earlier point you made, too, you're right. Like, don't be the guy who every month is bitching about not having a raise because then that guy's never going to get a raise. and Nobody likes that person. So there is obviously a very delicate balance there. Even if you feel like you really deserve it, don't ask for it all the time because you're just going to be the annoying person and they're not going to want to give it to you. Yeah, you want like if you're younger and you're at the workplace and you're showing up three months after the job saying, hey, I know my worth. All yeah. right. Although that's like just, a Gen Z thing. Some Gen yeah, Z but, people, they don't care. They're just like, hey, this is the standard. I should be making this. And you're like, you've been here for three hours. What's happening? Yeah, it's a very delicate balance of like looking out for yourself, which I'm all for, but you can't be delusional about it. You can't. And I don't think get any sense from this email at all, by the way. So I feel like we're just touching on a million things that have nothing to do yeah. with the email now. I think this guy's got a good head on his shoulders. Like, like we said, he's mentioned they were willing to give him this bump and this title thing. Don't go in the day after the layoffs. All right. Give it a month or two, like everybody said. Is there anyone in power that you trust that isn't going to be? And you just want to slow play it. Be like, hey, look, I know now is not the time, but at some point in the future, I'd like to discuss this again. Doesn't you know? Doesn't have to be right now. I just want to make sure. Like, is there is there a way for me to handle this that is respectful to the process and everything that's going on with the company? All right. And if he says, hey, yeah, it's not going to happen for a year. It's just too many people out there that are thinking about how unhappy they are at work and feeling like they're not being treated better. They all want to leave. Do you do anything else to create leverage for yourself? Because almost none of these fucking companies care about any of us. I don't care what you do until they think they're, you're going to lose. They're going to lose you. All right. And if you actually are valuable, like, hey, look. So, I mean, you know, keep working on it. Mm. Keep working on it. Make sure you have, if there's one thing I would tell everybody at a very young age, try to figure out options. And if that's planting a seed with somebody five years later, I, I couldn't figure out why people on TV, I'm like, why the fuck would they want to hang out with these guys? And I was like, oh, these are all the decision makers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. 
it took like, me a long I'm time si- to figure that out. I'm sitting there with Chris Long in the corner being like, this is awesome. And then I'm looking across the hallway at some party and then I'm thinking like, oh, that guy's with that dude and that guy just got promoted to head of programming for that. And be like, all right, I was... Uh, yeah, I was bad. I'd argue I continue to be really bad at those things. So. <laughs> I used to, yeah. Remember, you know the people that you work with that, and like again, this isn't even a bad thing, but like young me was like, "What the hell is this?" They're like <laughs> always, they're always meeting with people. Like they're, hey, I'll just meet with this person. Like, why are you meeting with? You don't even work with them. Why are you meeting with them? Oh, I just want to like show face. I'm like, well, that's dumb. Like, stop being a brown noser. But you know what happens? Those people usually get promoted. <laughs> those people usually move around and get different opportunities because they, you know, the, the face time matters. And it took me again. It's embarrassing. But it took me a long time to like really figure. I'm still not even good at it. But like, I just I, now I at least understand the value of it. Yeah, you have to humanize any decision about your career. You have to, and. You know, I remember the one time I did something like that. I sent a bottle of Spanish wine over to an executive at a table who I had had battles with. I knew he thought I sucked. We were at the <laughs> same spot downtown. And I don't know. I would think I was just sitting at the bar. I might have been on a date. Look out for solo. And yeah. I go, fuck it. I was like, hey, send him uh, your best Spanish wine, something light for the table. And then the guy came up to me like a couple of days later and was like, you know, you're all right. You're not a bad guy. Yeah. I was like, I know I'm not, but you know, I had to fucking send over a $60 bottle of something from Madrid to convince you of that with your fucking small plates. All right, moving on. Next. Oh, now I know where it is. Nice. Yeah. I was, wonder- I was wondering where it was anyway. Wasn't Chipotle. Tell you that. <laughs> okay. Uh, Rosillo. <laughs> all right, here we go. Speaking of, Zillow, you like you like it, huh, Kyle? You really uh, like it. I can't on get Zillow enough, man. Cannot thinking about get changing enough. your life one Big time, one search at a time, one square foot at a time. What's up, guys? Love the pod. Six two two forty something. Lots of weights. Too much Sam Adams. Trying to get more cardio in lately. I'm in my thirties and can grab rim, but nothing impressive. Two forty grabbing rim, dude. Impressive. I'm kind of like a combo of Bo Diao and Greg Ostertag on the court. Uh can you pass like Diao or are you just thick? Because Diao's passing when he came up was incredible. I remember watching him in the summer league and I was like, you get it. I think a lot of guys like to pretend they're Boris Diao because they have this like inside outside game. I don't think many of us can pass like Boris Diao can when he cared. Uh, Ostertag, intimidating force, hard foul. Balding white guy that can defend the rim, streaky shooter if need be, but I'd rather find an open cutter and get boards. All right, maybe he has a little Boris Diao in him. Real early 2000s glue guy. Anyway, uh, I give you some help, a little background first. My folks moved from Texas where I grew up and live today. So the guy's from Texas, lives in Texas now, to Massachusetts uh, when he was in college. So at the time, I didn't think anything of it. I'd never been to New England before and didn't really care about the area. I started spending time up there with them, uh, first just on holidays, but then I noticed how much I loved it and eventually ended up spending most of my free time up there and bringing friends up to hang out. They lived in Nashua, which is uh, southern New Hampshire, the first few years, then moved to the Berkshires for my dad's job. Uh, when they were in Nashville, we'd spend all of our time in and around Boston. We did all the usual games at Fenway, hung out at the Harbor, North End, Freedom Trail, all the typical stuff, some North Shore and Cape as well. Man, they really got it in. Uh, then they moved to the Berkshires, uh, and they still live there now. I know there's an East Mass, West Mass thing, but whatever. Yeah, it exists. 413, what up? I love the Berkshires, man. Uh, your boy's a big, f- your boy's a big fresh air guy. This guy loves fresh air. You hear about him? There's going to be people reviewing this pod going to be like, shout out to that guy who loves all that fresh air. <laughs> um, so the hiking around here is perfect. A, a half 
the back porches in their town have a view of some of the small mountain range or a creek running behind them. Perfect to hang out, put on some music, have a beer. It's also nice being so close to southern Vermont, upstate New York. My buddies and I have found a few small lakes in Vermont. Uh, we love to swim at, then stop at some local microbrews on the way home. It's not too far from some of the Connecticut beaches around New Haven either. Maybe two hours max. All right. This is a... Dude, you'll go anywhere, huh? Um, go to the Rhode Island beaches, first of all. I don't... The Connecticut beach thing, New Haven. I mean, it's also... Yeah. Right. It's also funny, too, that like because you're from Texas, you think driving from the Berkshires to New London or New Haven or whatever, like, or too far... Like it isn't that far, but being Saruti and I, and like even Kyle, upstate New York, like when yeah, you're thanks. from that Northeast, yeah, you're shout out Kyle. Even Kyle, Fuck, sometimes. Well, <laughs> you know what I mean. Like it's not technically New England, but yeah. If something's two hours away for us, we're like that sucks. Yeah. People from the Midwest, Midwest, will drive eight hours and not even think about it, and not even leave uh, the state. That's ama- it's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Texas, these guys thinking I, I'll hit up New Haven for some pizza and then I'll be at Portsmouth that day for a lobster roll. He doesn't even think anything of it. All right. So, all right. Um, all in all, I've spent about a year's worth of time here, but I love Massachusetts. Life in New England is my spirit uh, speed. It's weird. It feels more like home than my hometown does now. I could move there tomorrow and be happy, but my wife doesn't want to leave Texas permanently. I think we covered one of these earlier this week. Man. I get it. Her family's all here. and We have a six-month-old son who we want to grow up close to family. All right. So you're not moving. With that being said, she gets how much I love New England and is willing to go in on an investment property in the yes. area. All right. Second home. This is Amazing. a win-win. We're not Taylor wealthy. Swift next to each other. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> We're not wealthy, but I do have a good job and we live below our means. So we have some capital to play with. All right. So it sounds like the guys get a little cash squared away here. We own the home we're in. And have an investment property a few miles away. The thought is buy a property and convert it to an Airbnb. We could have it rent it out while we're in Texas and use it throughout the year when we're in mass. Uh, this is where we need some Rosillo help. Uh, I will not be opening myself up to scrutiny on this one. I can imagine the feedback when I get here. Uh, I'm torn about where to buy. On one hand, the highest demand would be in and around Boston, but the prices are insane. Same goes for the North Shore and Cape. I was thinking maybe Worcester. Hmm. I think I will jump in here and say you should not be thinking about Worcester. Ah, <laughs> <Yeah, okay. laughs> uh, um, I've been to Worcester a couple of times, couple concerts. That's the only reason I ever go there. Um, he, he includes a following up that sentence that Airbnb demand in Worcester seems low. I'm going to go ahead and confirm that that's yep. probably low. Kyle, yep. can you can you do a quick Airbnb search first week of August, Worcester, Mass? See yeah. what's available there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. The thought is buy a property, convert to the Airbnb. Um, the Berkshires wouldn't be a bad spot, but then we're about two and a half hours outside of Boston. We'll want to spend more time there. The winter demand might be better there, though, since there are a few slopes that aren't far. I'm even thinking maybe New Hampshire for the tax breaks. <laughs> uh oh. But I don't want to, I don't know how to gauge the demand. If you want to expand on that, I'm sure the audience would appreciate your New Hampshire tax rate take. Uh, I don't know. I don't nice. know if they would. Yeah, tax-wise, uh, New Hampshire would be the call. But, I, you know, again, the property stuff, I believe it or not, I'm not a tax expert in all 50 states on real estate. Uh, there are some complications if you're renting a place out and then you go to sell it. Um, there's the two and five-year rule. Uh, I also ran into something where there was going to soon be a straight-up transaction tax if I had been inside the house less than 24 months. So that's something else that you have to think about. But again, I'm not an expert in all these things. There's just a bunch of different things that you always have to think about. I'll ask you this. Nobody loves the idea of a getaway house more than this guy. 
I don't fucking leave my town. All right. So the idea of it, oh, I'd like to do this. I can't even afford it right now. But the idea of the, the mountain getaway and all that kind of stuff, it is so great on paper. It feels great. Well, actually, you could argue it's not great on paper, but in your head, you're searching, you're thinking about things like, oh, that's pretty cool. Oh, man, I'll be out. I got a creek out back fly fishing. I want to be incredible. I'll get a year-round license instead of just the 10-dayer. This is going to be great. Um, and then you have it, right? And then the person always goes, not me. The person will be like, I never fucking go there. And the thing is, is you're in Texas thinking about Southern New Hampshire or the Berkshires. Are you actually going to use it? And are you going to use it enough now that you have a six-month-old? All right? Now, I'm not going to ever tell you to not invest in another property. All right? The North Shore Cape thing being too expensive and you starting to hint towards Worcester tells me the budget isn't limitless here. 14 Airbnbs in Worcester, by the way, for August 1st. 14? 14. Some as low as 80 bucks, though. So I don't know how much the return is. 80 bucks? Yeah. I told you about, I was looking at Colchester, Vermont for an Airbnb and there was a trailer that was available and it said rekindle with your, I was like, rekindle or get fucking divorced. Like if I rent this, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Maybe I'll pitch that to Bargatze. I think there's something nice. there, you know, yeah. work foundation or something. Uh, it sounds like, you know, the Airbnb has to be a desirable place. So you need to figure out the balance between, is there something outside of Portsmouth, New Hampshire? If you want to start talking about saving some money, because again, I don't know all of the Great tech spot. stuff for New Hampshire, but it's a little bit more advantageous. You're closer to Boston. Um, you have to ask yourself this, like if this were going to be something you're actually going to use enough, are you going to be, it sounds like you like the Boston part of this and the beaches around that area than you would the Berkshire part of it because um, maybe Portsmouth gets you in the tourism game in some surrounding town. And again, you're still close enough to Boston, North Shore beaches, all that stuff. Well, hell, you can go to the beach in Southern New Hampshire as well. So um, there's some places in Southern New Hampshire that I've driven by, like some weird weekends up there on the way back where I was like, this is like Daytona, but like biker week. Uh, it is it is a rowdy little section. So I don't know if that place, cost-wise, you can probably find something nice. I don't know what the security deposit would be with the people that would rent it out there. I forget what town it is. It's incredible. I've never stayed there. I just drove through it once. So um, the other part of it, when you're renting something out, are you going to pay a management company? You're going to have to. You can keep turning it over, especially with the Airbnb part of it. Whereas if you're renting it out every single year and somebody else is covering your mortgage insurance. Another thing is that sometimes you have to play a little bit of a game on how the mortgage is going to work because maybe they're not going to just let you go 20% down straight on a brand new house unless you think you're going to pay cash the whole thing. Then go ahead and do it. Obviously, the mortgage products are probably a little bit tougher to come by right now. Uh, I'm not going to say that everything's impossible with that, but I know when I was still in Connecticut and because my condo was pretty modest and I was thinking about would I actually get a place in Burlington, all these different things. I mean, it was going to be a bit challenging financially for some of the stuff that you just want to pull off on a second home. You know, sometimes the place is straight up would be like 50% down. I know there are other places that don't do that. So don't, it's not a hard and fast rule with all of this. But I, I think you have to be very honest with yourself and kind of see where the wife is at with this too, is that, is this a realistic dream? It's an awesome dream to have. I'm not saying no, don't do it. But I think we are all very unrealistic about how often we would use something and adding in the headache, the headache of the constant turnover of having this be a destination Airbnb and finding something that is still desirable enough that fits your budget. And that's why I would say something surrounding Portsmouth because Portsmouth's fucking awesome. 
You're not dealing with the North Shore Boston commute thing. Um, you still are close enough to Boston unless you want to go, you know, deep in the woods where it's still a decent enough commute to some of the slopes. But is that going to be more demand? That's why I think Portsmouth actually makes a lot of sense because I think there'll be more year-round demand for you uh, because the summers there are incredible. Mm -hmm. Whereas in some of the other more mountainous areas that aren't close to anything, like I've done that drive on the back roads and there's just a lot of places where there's nothing there. And so you're in the woods, you're cracking a beer, a little widespread on the back porch, and then it's then it's like four days later. And it sounds like you like to do a lot of stuff and it might be too slow for you um, even though the idea of it for a weekend seems amazing. I don't know anything about what you just said. It sounded like you were saying a lot of places that aren't Poughkeepsie, New York. So I've just been kind of glazed over. But <laughs> what I was thinking, what I was thinking though was what if it was like, like it's, it's Boston-ish, right? It doesn't have like the most colleges around. Couldn't you make it like a, a single family college house and then only rent it to like graduate students or girls or something? And then just when you're ready to actually have your big summer thing, just make sure you don't renew anybody's lease for after the semester. Like, couldn't you just do that? Might be a little selfish. Like somebody's been there for three semesters. And you're like, yeah, no, this is now when I'm actually ready to come up here for two months. So you can't have it again. But, you know, I feel like generally like women and probably older older college students respect houses more. Uh, at least that's been my experience. So maybe you could do that. That way you wouldn't be worried that nobody's renting it and uh, you could lock people in for like a semester at a time or something like that and just decide when you want to be done and then decide when you want to start up again. I don't know. I think the issue is you, it's not like you live in Connecticut and you're thinking about buying a house at the Cape or a condo at the Cape and it's like a you know two hour drive or whatever. You have to fly from Texas to Boston, then drive to the Cape. And Ryan said, like, how many times are you actually going to do that? It's probably not a ton. Um, if you're using it as like a straight up investment property, okay, that's one thing. But I mean, you have to realistically realize that you are not going to be there like every month of the year or even probably six months of the year, you know? Um, it's just it's just tough to actually logistically do that. I would say, you know, you're probably right. I would look at Port, uh, Portland, Maine too. I'm a big Maine guy. I love Maine. Um, I know. I always like said that about real, you. I mean, seriously, Maine is the most underrated state in the union. I will I will die on that hill. It's it's an unbelievable place. Uh, not super close. I mean, you can't like Portland's not terribly close. It's it's kind of close to Boston, I guess, but it's not as close. I think as uh, as Portsmouth. The other thing I think you could think of is um, I know there are like condos available in the Cape Cod area and Brewster, like the center sort of area. Um, I don't know if you're into like a condo thing or you want a house, but there's some affordable stuff there that you could very easily rent out. But again, you're going to have to be renting this out like most of the summer to probably break even if it's really an investment property. So it's whatever you're kind of comfortable with. But um, I, I think, yeah, I would. <laughs> Worcester is a terrible idea. I hate to say that. Like, I don't want to be a dick about it, but Worcester seems like a terrible idea. I think people from Worcester would agree that it's a terrible idea. For tourism, Airbnbs, there's people yeah. from Worcester agreeing with us on this one. So I'm not, you know, we didn't say it's the worst city ever. It's just, you're starting to do a business here. There's just a lot of stuff, man. And I, t I tell you, every accountant, every single accountant is like, why not just rent? Now, unless you're going to hold this property as a long-term investment, but it sounds like you have a property, maybe take some money out, you saved enough. I mean, look, maybe you can do all these things and pull it off. The mortgage stuff right now isn't, you know... Well, I guess they're all going to say the same thing. But like, we're still at historic lows. Um, mm. But it always makes you a little pissed off when you start doing the calculations on what the rates were versus what they are now with how much, you know, your interest would get bumped up each month, depending on the overall price of this. I mean, there's just a lot. There's a lot to get your arms around. And we're never going to cover it all here and answering at the end of some dumb fucking podcast. But you just had a kid. It's six months old. 
like Saruti said, how many times are you getting on a flight from Texas to New England to do this? Where whether it's the down payment, the insurance coverage, someone managing the property, all of these expenses, man. Like I rented out two houses, and for the most part, it went pretty well. But then there's like one person that makes you never want to do it again, like ruining really nice stuff, arguing with me about it. And, you know, I just was like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to sit here and fucking argue. I'm not going to go to court over a mattress. I'm not just going to do it, but like, you're wrong. You know, you're wrong and you don't want to tell me anything differently. And that's it. It's just the end of the conversation. And then you just, it leaves you going, this isn't fucking worth it because your margins are going to be pretty tight. I would imagine on whatever you're getting in for rent and every part of your expense. We haven't even touched on HOAs depending on what kind of thing you buy. So, mm. uh, just, just be real. Like if, unless you're super adventurous and your wife is super adventurous and you want to be near your parents and all that kind of stuff and she's totally on board and it doesn't ding you financially, like this is a really hard thing to do. It's tough enough to get your first house, man. So if you can pull all those things off and you're that, but it's just, I guess there's just be so many people listening going, you're not going to really take full advantage of this thing to think of it as an investment property unless you think you're hitting it at the perfectly right time, which I would say right now I would wait to see what's happening with the economy the next year or so before we start buying up shit. Um, could be wrong on that. It's just, just whatever, you know, kind of how I feel right now. Uh, and are you finding a place? Are you getting, are you getting ahead of the next wave of the next place? Cause all the places you probably want right now have already bought and bought up and the prices are nuts. Are you going to be able to researched enough to think that strategically you're buying in the right area that makes sense as the next wave of things happens while some people will tell you we're at the beginning of a recession or it's already started, which again, a completely different debate that I'm not equipped enough uh, with enough information to even feel comfortable saying whether or not I know that's happening. Um, but I think Sarudi nailed this one on that one. And I don't want I don't want upstate New York Kyle to feel left out. Poughkeepsie's too, on fire right now, there. guy. Just yeah. 12603 <laughs> on fire. Absolute fire. Vassar College, Harvard on the Hudson. Come on. Harvard on the Hudson. CIA, <laughs> Culinary Institute of America, right there in Hyde Park. In Hyde Park, we have Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the Vanderbilt Mansion. Do I need to say more? That's where you can find me for the next couple of weeks. Check it out. Sounds like you got to talk to Kyle. Yeah. Maybe Poughkeepsie's the spot. Did I hear Hartford on the Hudson? Harvard. Harvard on Harvard. the Hudson. No. Oh. <laughs> Harvard on the Hudson. <laughs> I was going to say, they need new marketing people. <laughs> Uh, man. New England's rising star. Yeah. All right. Thanks to Kyle and Steve. Thanks for listening to Life Advice. God, these are so long sometimes. This, that's my <laughs> fault. We're going to make these quicker. Uh, please check out the pod. Remember, slow podcast. Bring your Spotify.